0: Device
1: Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is medical device sales. Happy New Year, y'all. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Chilean sea bass in times of lutefisk. Had a friend of mine from Norway many years ago detail me on this diabolical permutation of Cod. Now, for the record, some Europeans think this is a great dish and others consider it a national disgrace. But personally, I think any fish preparation recipe that says add two tablespoons of lye and let sit for three days is positively inhuman. But I digress. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. And we are here yet again at Device Nation to provide you with ideas, stories, and interviews to take you from good to great this coming 2021. My year got off to a great start the other day. I went to the hospital to deliver some instruments, and the front entrance was closed, so I had to go to the emergency room to get my temperature scan. He said, are you a rep? And I said, well, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, I just had to check. He said, you look like a rep. I'm not sure what that even means. Perhaps it was that stressed look on my face. He said, we've had a real run of people pretending to be reps to get upstairs. The hospital is apparently locked down because of COVID. So three things immediately came to my mind. Number one, it's kind of tragic, right? that Somebody would have to pretend to be one of us just to get up and see one of their loved ones. Number two, I thought, isn't that kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, the lowest of the low, pretending to be a rep? (laughs) And number three, I'm thinking go up to that rep tracks machine and sign in, sign out, sign in, sign out. Now you got 20 stickers, nice blurry picture. Just sit out at the back dock and hand them out. You want to see your grandma? Well, here you go. I mean, it's all about duty and humanity. We are going to connect you with your loved ones. I mean, if you're going to get kicked out of the hospital, that's the way to do it, right? When people talk about you down the road. Whatever happened to so-and-so? Well, he got thrown out, but... Man, did you see what he was doing to connect people with people? I personally know stories of reps pretending to be docs. That didn't go well. I know stories of a PA once who pretended to be a surgeon. That didn't end well in his career, but you know the horseman of the apocalypse is right behind you when we find ourselves at a place in history where people are pretending to be us. Well, our guest today is certainly comfortable in his own skin, and I am so excited to bring his story to this amazing audience. His name is Dr. Tom Gross out of Columbia, South Carolina, and he is the number one hip resurfacing surgeon in the United States, and we're going to talk about that journey. By the end of this conversation, you're going to know exactly what hip resurfacing is. I know a lot of you are hearing about it for the first time, know about the history of it, and if you're a recon rep, you need to know. And if you're not a recon rep, you need to know. It's just good information. You're going to want to stick around to the very end of this talk. I mean, there's so many pearls. I was taking notes left and right. And for good measure, we're going to talk a little Deadliest Catch while we're at it. One of my favorite shows. And yes, there is a connection. So without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start this new year talking with Dr. Tom Gross. Welcome to the show, sir.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Kevin.
1: Dr. Gross, thank you so much for coming on Device Nation to share your story. I can't wait to do a deep dive on hip resurfacing with you. But first, <laughs> let's go across the pond to Berlin, Germany. What put you on the path to a career as an orthopedic surgeon?
2: Oh, I, I, I guess I guess there's, there's just a lot of luck involved in where you end up in the end. But um, I was born in Berlin to German parents, not military. And... Um, uh, after the war, opportunities were restricted in Germany for my father, so um, he came to the U.S. to check it out and ended up staying. And uh, with my with my mother and I was already born in Germany. I was uh, two years old when when um, my parents got green cards for the three of us and and headed to America as uh, legal immigrants. And um, we ended up in in California at first, where he did his first. Uh, my dad was a chemist. He did a postdoc there, a postdoctoral fellowship. So that's how he kind of that was his. You know, way to to come over here and look at America. They didn't have any money. They couldn't just come here and be tourists. And and uh, they liked it a lot. Now they we we bounced to Boston for a couple of years, and then back to California where I grew up. Um, most you know, most of my life, young life, and then I ended up in uh, going to going to uh, uh, starting college um, in uh, Stockton, California, where I, where I grew up. And my dad was a professor at the University of Pacific there in, in chemistry. Then I then I got out of the house and went down to USC in LA for the last two years, just to just to get a little independence and so forth. And um, yeah, that was that was my initial growing up. And then then I uh, was fortunate enough to get into into one of the best medical schools in the country, uh, Johns Hopkins, and uh, also got into UCSF locally, which was excellent. But I decided I'd go go to the East Coast because I hadn't experienced it just to broaden my horizon. So uh, I went out there, and um, it was it was an amazing experience going to one of these top medical schools. Where, I mean. Our professors would come in and lecture to us, say, anatomy, and they'd all be talking about their research interests. They wouldn't be teaching us basic anatomy, how the, you know, what ligament is here on the hip or the knee or whatever. They'd just be talking about their research interests, and then we'd have to go home and study that on our own, and then we'd have to come back. So we, sure. we got all some, this, this amazing – we had we – had, um, who was it? Leakey was one of our professors, and the guy that does the uh, – did the excavations? He was an anatomy professor in Africa. You know these kind of people. It was absolutely yes. amazing experience. Some of them, some students complained about it because it was We weren't being spoon fed the information we needed. But I thought it was the most amazing. Uh, education to get and then i stayed on there for residency and then finally i made my way back to california um i did a fellowship in sacramento which is very close to my hometown uh with very innovative uh surgeon who's now retired bill barger robo he developed a robodoc, the first orthopedic robot and he but he actually didn't use it the year i was there the as soon as I finished the fellowship of the one year, so it was a total joint fellowship of the hip and knee. And uh, so that's what I learned from him. And I learned a lot about implant design. He was developing the RoboDoc over years, but the first use of it was shortly into the next fellow's uh, experience. So, you know, I, I didn't get to experience the, the RoboDoc. But I, I did learn a lot about custom implants there. He was a big proponent of using custom implants. Uh, so I got really comfortable using custom implants and learned a lot about implant design by having to design every implant. He did a whole lot of, lot of custom implants. So I got real comfortable with that process. Then I went off to um, into private practice down in Fresno, and um, it was a it was a decent experience. Pretty quickly, I came to realize that that it'd be a long road to become a specialist in joint replacement if I stayed there, because it was just more of a general orthopedics practice. Great guys I I joined up with, but but it was just I I just saw that it was going to take me forever to become specialized the way I wanted to. So uh, then I looked around for for a better opportunity, and uh, and landed in Columbia, Little Old Columbia, South Carolina, which is about you know. 500,000 metro area town, the capital, but I ended up here because just by luck through back channels, I talked to this person, that person ended up, they needed a total joint surgeon Their Their senior guy had uh, gotten sick and they needed someone pretty quickly to replace them. And so there was a big backlog of surgery that needed to be done. This group was unique for a small town because everybody is a, was subspecialty trained. So it wasn't like the practice I left in Fresno where everybody was a general orthopedic surgeon. And I was the only subspecialty trained guy. So here I, I fell in I was immediately a total joint surgeon, so I could really develop my career quicker. So it turned out to be a really good opportunity for me. And uh, these kind of opportunities are usually, you know, you find them in big cities and I I really didn't want to live in a big city. So I found a, a a small city in a warm climate, which had a great opportunity to develop a total joint practice. So, so I grabbed it and that's where I've been and I've loved it here. Eventually I uh, stumbled upon resourcing and, um, and that's what this, this interview is mostly about.
1: Your name to me is synonymous with hip resurfacing. Could you share with the uninitiated in the audience just exactly what that procedure is?
2: Okay, uh, hip resurfacing has been around. It, it was really the um, the very first way hip replacement was done, but it just didn't work out in the early days. It was back in the 1950s. Hip resurfacing is just a different version of hip replacement. The simple way to, to think about it is, you know, when you have an arthritic hip, I mean, there's all kinds of different, Deformities and different problems around the hip that lead to hip replacement. But basically, in the majority, the problem is that the, is that, the, that cartilage surface has worn away for one reason or another, and so then the bone is exposed and the bone is rubbing on the bone. That's the source of the pain. And the goal is to restore that cartilage, but we can't yet regrow cartilage. That's going to be the ultimate solution. Until that point, we have to use artificial materials to take the place of the cartilage to recreate a new layer on both sides of the joint that are fixed to the bone and that rub against each other. And so now you don't have the bone rubbing on the bone. That's, it's a very basic, simple problem. Easy to understand, and you know, we started attacking this back, way back in the 50s, before I was born. He started to try to stick implants in, see pieces of glass, single pieces of metal cups, things like that, it was something called, thing called a cup arthroplasty. It evolved, there have been a lot of hiccups in the road for resurfacing, but basically total hip replacement was a reasonably good solution, and that was John Sharnley in England, back in the 60s, he played around for a long time and came up with a total hip concept. But there are other people had tried this resurfacing idea first, and in both operations, you're cutting away bone and putting implants that you fix into the bone on both sides, and then the implants move against each other. So, so that's the basic way to solve it. The first resurfacing implants didn't work out that well, and then this total hip with cement and, and metal and plastic was the first thing that really worked. But the problem with that is it changes the hip a whole lot. And, and really, all you're trying to do is replace that surface of cartilage. And here you're cutting off the whole head and sticking a stem down in the, in the canal of the femur. And loading a part of the femur that's not used to being loaded, and, and you're putting this, this thick metal plastic initially, and now metal on plastic socket, and, and used to be cement, but now bone ingrowth you put on this real thick piece, so you make the socket smaller than natural, you have the stem that loads down in the femur. Yeah, it's great for an old person who has a horrible hip is limping around and is in miserable pain. It's not really normal enough for our, our younger patients. We're increasingly operating on younger and younger patients as hip replacement is getting more successful. The total hip is just not good enough. It's okay for the old person who wants to golf and walk on the beach. But for someone who really wants to still be athletic and, you know, and do, or do heavy labor or something, it just doesn't work. Resurfacing, you know, something we've tried to go back to over and over again. And, and, uh, and, and every time it's come up, it, it hasn't really worked out because technically it's a challenge to do the operation because you you're not cutting off the ball. So the operation is much more difficult than when you do a total hip because you just cut off the ball and then you have room to work deep inside the hip joint. So it's always been a challenge technically for the surgeon to do oversourcing. And then to, to make real thin materials work, you know, with a total hip, you have much thicker pieces of plastic and metal so so they can tolerate more wear typically. So there's been there have been multiple iterations of this idea of just putting a thin surface on both sides and, and for one reason or another it's always failed. And then Derek McMinn in Birmingham, England, and um Harlan Amstutz in LA Kept on with this. They weren't discouraged by the initial failures of the resourcing. And they came up with a concept of doing it with met, all metal bearings, which had been around previously and had been discarded. They got they got back to it. And for the first time, they really made it work. And um, that's where the, where the technology was when I came upon it about 21 years ago, I guess it's now 22 years ago. I was at a meeting and I saw some of these early implants and I said, wow, this would be really good for my younger patients. You know, if I could just buy them a few years, I don't, I'm going to preserve the bone and it's going to be more like the natural hip. I thought this might be a really good idea, so so um, that's how I initially was exposed to the idea. I mean, you'd heard about it in residency training, how it hadn't worked previously, and we, were, you know, we were all brainwashed that resurfacing is not a good idea; it doesn't work. You just got to do it to a lip. But um, I had an open mind still, and and when I came across a newer version of this with metal bearings, I I got I got really intrigued with it
1: let's take a tour around the articulation, doctor, the design of it, material considerations. Walk me through the the journey of that particular side uh, of this implant. What's changed and what's making it work for you now?
2: So the, the implants that, that both Derek McMinn and, and Harlan Amstutz, so Derek McMinn developed a, um, what is now called the BHR and Smith and & Nephew. Richards bought his company, his small startup company from him. So it's a Smith's nephew Richard's implant now, and they sell it. And then Harlan Amstedt's developed the Conserve Plus with Wright Medical, which has now been bought up by a Chinese company, and they don't don't sell the implant in the U.S. anymore. But I think you can get it still in Europe and and Canada, maybe. The common feature of the implant was was the cast cobalt chrome implant on both the femur and the socket. Both of them were very thin, about three or four millimeters. So you're cutting, the concept is that you cut away a few millimeters of bone on the surface. You're not just replacing the cartilage, you can't make an implant that thin. But if you cut away three or four millimeters of, of bone and replace it with metal, and you can fix it to the bone and you do it on both sides, then then you then you've got a new artificial surface On the socket side, you know they vary in, in but they're usually about anywhere from three to six millimeters in thickness. the The biomed implant um, is about three on the edges and six on the apex and and we did that. So it would get a little stiffer. So it wouldn't be so flexible when you implanted it. So it wouldn't deform. Um, there's others that are like four millimeters all the way around, but they're, they're all very thin in that, in that neighborhood. You have to be able to fix it to the bone. So you can either cement it into the bone or you can use a, some type of a porous coating where the bone grows into it. All the implants available use a porous coating. The cement isn't something that's no longer used uh, on the socket. Then there has to be a bearing side to articulate with another metal bearing. In joint replacement, you can use metal on metal bearing. Sometimes, you, sometimes you can use metal on plastic, ceramic on plastic, or ceramic on ceramic. The first successful resourcing implants were metal on metal, and the only metals that are that that work that have good good enough wear properties are cobalt chrome. So it's an alloy of cobalt, chrome, uh, nickel, molybdenum, and a little bit of carbon. The bearing side is a very polished um, piece of cobalt chrome. And so, so it's, a, it's a it's a thin piece of metal that has bone-on-growth on one side and bearing surface on the other. And total hips, it's usually two pieces. You have a, a shell with bone-on-growth, and then you put a bearing material inside of that, so it gets a lot thicker. To do a resourcing, you have to keep it really thin. Otherwise, you can't take a small layer off the femur and make it fit. Right? That's why we do total hips. That's why, because the socket gets too thick, the bearing, bearing side gets artificially small, then you have to cut the head off fix down lower so you can so you can provide a small ball to fit into that socket. And and that that of course changes everything. We're trying to avoid that. There's also another feature called the coverage arc, which is something we didn't appreciate the importance of early on in design of this. But we know that the natural hip is not 180 degrees. It's not a full hemisphere. Um, but total hips have bearings that are full hemispheres. Because you put a big socket piece in, you put a piece of polyethylene in, and then you have a smaller neck on the stem. So so you can make a hundred and eighty degree coverage arc. If you go any more than 180 degrees, of course, you can't put the ball into the socket anymore. So 180 is kind of the max, but with resurfacing we we couldn't do 180 because then the edge of the uh, implant would stick out too much from the bone because the natural bone is, the natural socket is not 180 degrees. And, and then the neck would start bumping into it and you get impingement. So the coverage is also less than the 180 degrees of the total hip. is. It's more like the natural hip coverage. It's, and it varies, but it's around 165 degrees rather than 180. And that'll be important later on when we talk about wear problems. So on the femoral side, the original implants were cemented. And the reason for that, so again, you're taking off a thin layer. You're taking off all the, some cartilage is worn through. You're taking off the remaining cartilage and you're taking off about three, on average, three to four millimeters of bone. Then you put this cap over the top, which the outer side of the cap perfectly fits that bearing on the socket. And then the inner side, of course, attaches to the bone and it has, usually has a Cylinder shape, and then either a chamfer or a hemispherical shape. The biome has a hemispherical shape, but it has a standardized geometric shape that we can prepare to match the underside of the implant, so we then can so it fits nicely on there. And then usually the the femoral component has been fixed with cement. But that's where I branched off from what Derek and Harlan were doing. You know, when I started in this 20 years ago, I thought it was a great idea to do a more bone-conserving procedure with really durable metal bearings. For young people, and you know, buy them some time before they needed that total hip replacement. We didn't know how long it'd last, but I just didn't think it made any sense to go back to cement fixing the femur. And that's what these Derek and, and Harlan were doing. And you know, we didn't have any long-term data yet. I just figured cement would break down. I mean, it it had proven not to last in young people in total hips already by that time. I was the young people I was doing. I was doing total hips that are uncemented on both sides. You know, this was 20 years ago. A lot of people were still cementing. And I was using ceramic on plastic bearings. That was the best bearing for a total I could that I could see. And uh, and now I was going to resurfacing, but then I was going to cement the femur. I thought I was taking a step backwards with that. So I started doing it that way because that was all that was available. But that's where I got Biomed interested in developing a competing implant because uh, and at that time, the, the Wright Medical and the uh, BHR were investigational. That they hadn't even hit the U.S. yet. The right medical was because Harlan's was in L.A., but BHR hadn't even come to America yet. Um, there was a corn implant that I used first, and I ran the FDA study for that, and it was also the same way. It was, it was one of Derek's earlier designs, and it was also cemented on the femur. I just didn't like that. I did it. I ran the study, you know, and and, and, and that was okay, but my goal was to have it all bone-in growth because I thought that would be much more durable for the long, long run, and we're trying to put it in young people who are going to really beat on these things. So um, that's... That's where the recap is, is the name of the femoral component for Biomet, and the Magnum is the name of the acetabular component. So the, the recap was designed to be uncemented. The first one that came out in 2005 was cemented because that's, that's a lot easier to do. The challenge was putting the porous coating on the inside and, and, and building tools that precisely cut for that. That's why I think Derek and Harlan didn't do it because... You know, it's relatively easy to put a porous coating on the outside of an implant for, for a manufacturing prop standpoint, but to then go on the inside and spray a porous coating on there is a lot bigger challenge. And, it, and you can't just spray it on there. It has to be, you know, it has to be very precise because you want to pr- have instruments that cut so that there's a reproducible amount of press fit, is what we call it. So in the Biomet recap, we designed one millimeter. We tried a bunch of things in the lab, and we settled on one millimeter, so the cut is one millimeter in diameter bigger than the actual implant? So, so you know, so it has to be you know within within a quarter of a uh, of a millimeter accuracy at least that you have to put that coating on, so that when you prepare this, you know, you can actually reliably stick it on. All right, so so that that was a challenge, and that took an extra two years. So Biomit came out with a Magnum, came out with a that took them three or four years to develop, and and the Recap cemented version. And so I started putting those in in '05. And then in 07, they finally got the uncemented, which was really what I wanted. And since then, that's all I've done is, is the uncemented femoral component. And so that is now, what, uh, 13 years. So now I've got data on that, um, you know, 10-year data. And and it does turn out that the uncemented implant uh, has a lower failure rate than the cemented one. So I've got data from the same design that was cemented on the femur. The socket was identical, then, then uncemented on the femur. And then we just looked at femoral failures. Well, it turns out that um, the cement works way better than I thought. I thought the, there were going to be a lot more failures with, the, with femoral loosening over time. But um, the rate of femoral loosening of a femoral component is about 1% at 10 years. There are other failure modes, too. The overall failure rate in, you know, in the general literature is about 5% in young people at, at 10 years. The, the femoral component loosening is 1%, right? So it's one-fifth of the, all the failures. And the uncemented one, uh, I've put in, what now, uh, since 07, 5,500, and I've had one come loose at around eight years. You know, that's way lower than 1%. so I just, I just had that happen this year. So as far as the other failure modes on the femur, the, there could be fractures early on, which is not, really no different between cemented and uncemented. The neck can fracture. That's kind of a patient biological problem. Then there's uh, necrosis of the head. So sometimes the head can undergo necrosis from the operation and the head can collapse. You know, that's the same between the two implants. For the uncemented one, there would be a unique failure mode, failure of ingrowth. Because the cement fixes initially, but then fails later as the cement fatigues. But we've had zero, we've had zero failure of ingrowth on the uncemented implant, 5,500. So it's very reliable with bone ingrowth. It always attaches and it never loosens up to 13 years. But you do have femoral neck fractures, and you have femoral head collapses. From from those are what I call biological failures. It's a whole other issue to go into. So, um, so the the femur is very reliable and very robust.
1: I remember showing a metal-on-metal articulation to a surgeon and putting a drop or two of water in the shell and just watching that head float on it. How does that elastohydrodynamic film work? What keeps the head from just pushing on into the shell and making metal-on-metal contact?
2: In the 1950s, when metal bearings were made, they didn't know what the specific correct characteristics were. They didn't have machines that were accurate enough even to make them. Zolzer figured that out from between 1950 and 1980 or something, and they brought out the first metal-on-metal total hip in the modern era, the Metasul, and it's had a tremendous track record. It had a little hiccup in the road with manufacturing with oil on the implant, there were some recalls, but the bearing itself was phenomenal. And still, if you look it up, it's it's one of the few total hips, metal metal total hips, that's just outperformed everything else. It's up there with ceramic on ceramic. But what they figured out is that you have to there has to be a polar bearing situation. So the the cup radius has to be slightly bigger than the head radius. So so basically, the point of the, if the way to think about it is, in simple terms is the point of the head has to be touching wherever it's touching on the socket, but nothing else is really touching. And, and so there has to be this little gap where fluid gets in. Like you said, you put a drop of fluid in these things, it, the gap that that radial um, clearance, we call it, is about 100 microns. Okay? So that's a difference in radiance. You need really precise tools to make these things. So you put a little drop of water in. You grab the, You can almost hold the, the, the femur up, and the, the socket will kind of just hang on for a while, and then eventually it's going kind to of fall off. Right? And you can spin it in there. It just like, spins like a top. Yeah. It's super well lubricated, so it's so the idea, the concept is that it's riding on a fluid film, and just that very, there's a, just a very tiny bit of contact at the very apex, and then there's a fluid film around it. So most of the most of the motion is going through that fluid area, fluid contact zone, and and so for whatever reason, this turns out to be it, it was just kind of found by trial and error. You know, pe- people didn't theoretically dream this up and then make it. They just found. Metasil found that uh, Zoltzer found that that the the earlier ones that it had where the where they had polar contact worked, and the ones where there was equatorial contact around the edges didn't work. And then they then they when they had that, then they started looking at different amounts of radio clearance. They had much better, you know, high-tech machines, and they could test it out in the lab. And they found that like you know when you get down to 100 microns clearance, and you could make them that precise. That's when they, rode, they worked really well, and they needed fluid, right? If you didn't put fluid in and test a the machine, they had a ton of wear. But with a little fluid in there, which the body supplies, um, they, they have a very low wear rate. And, and in, in lab testing, they have, the only thing that has lower wear is a ceramic-on-ceramic bearing. I mean, the cross-linked polyethylene that everybody loves so much, even with ceramic against cross link polyethylene, you get less wear from a metal-on-metal bearing. So, um, so you have to have polar bearing. You have to have a, a small radio clearance. In the lab, the smaller the radio clearance gets, the shorter the run-in wear is. So there's always this run-in wear, which you can think about as, you know, these implants are super smooth, but if you look at them on a high enough magnification, you'll see little ridges, right? And so in that area of of uh, main contact, which you would call the contact patch, over that first year or so, those little tips get rounded off, and it becomes even smoother than they made it. I mean, they make it to 5 microns a uh, uh, roughness but it even gets smoother in that initial year it's in that patient and so it puts off a little bit more cobalt comb in that first year and then if you follow you know if you study the levels in the blood and then after a year it starts coming down and then if it's a well-positioned implant that's not doing something funny like edge loading then the then the wear rate goes down and down and down and and you know about a third of the patients at 10 years you can't even detect the co- the metal in the body anymore
1: if i remember my training right those are the carbides right
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, the carbides are thought to be what are, are like the little, little little pegs if if you will on the metal surface that that are rubbing against each other. So yeah, it's a, a, yeah, yeah, it's thought that the uh the high carbon which is I think 0.2% ca- carbon is like the ideal carbon concentration that forms these carbides. So there was one implant that that um was forged and didn't have those big carbides and also had very good wear characteristics. So um so I'm not sure what all the characteristics of the carbides are that are important, but um uh, the most most implants that are successful have a high carbon content which is point two I think point two percent. It's still a tiny amount of carbon and they form those carbides and, and they are thought to be important in the in minimizing the wear process. But that's about as sophisticated as I get about it. I I can get about it. I'm not a, a metallurgist expert.
1: I noticed that on the Birmingham, the smaller sizes that would be normally associated with females are no longer available in the United States. What are your thoughts on females and this procedure?
2: I'm a bit of a radical. I think everybody who wants an artificial hip should have a hip resurfacing, and that's where my practice is. I do mostly younger people. I, do, I, I, don't, have, I don't exclude people by age. I don't exclude people by sex. Early on I think we went a little bit the wrong way by looking too much at patient selection. Harlan Amstad started this. So he was you know, he was just doing everybody. That's what he did. And and generally younger people want this and seek it out. And when you're gonna do something new and experimental Sort of experimental, you you want to look at the group of people that don't do well with what's already out there, which are the young people. They didn't do well with total hips, so we started getting into this, looking at his data and saying which are you know it does well and better in these people and does worse in these. And and by doing better and worse, we're just purely looking at how long the implant lasts, not how it functions. I mean, these things have since been shown to function way better than a total hip. You know, old folks who want to golf and walk on the beach do fine with total hips. It's a great operation. But if you want to do higher love activity, if you really want to push it and do have physical, real physical stuff, you should start running into a ceiling with a total hip. And the resourcing allows people to break through that and do all these things. That's what's been the most amazing thing about doing this resourcing. But get to get back to the original question, he hardly started doing it, was doing it on everybody. He's one of the pioneers. And, and then he started noticing that, you know, women didn't do as well. And older people didn't do as well as far as just not functionally, but just their implants failed earlier for some reason. And then we started looking at that more and more. And then more and more data started, other people started looking at, it. We, yeah, women didn't have as good a success rate as men. And the smaller implants had a higher failure rate, rate due to primarily wear failures. That's what really changed things. So in about, I started doing this in 2000, 1999 was actually my first implant with a custom implant, but um, I started doing it more and more and uh, around 2007, we first started seeing these cases of failure. The patient had pain and swelling and bone loss around the implant. But the implants were well fixed and, 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 you know, didn't have one. It wasn't like they didn't, they weren't loose. They weren't infected. But then we'd take the fluid off and they were, they looked like, it looked, you know, you test the fluid or open the hip up and look at it. Looked like there was pus in there. People thought these were infected at first. Now they weren't. Those were the first cases of metallosis. And that's answering your question. Metallosis in about 2007, when I first became aware of this is the problem i've been doing this for operation for eight years already and i saw my first case of it one of my patients and i've been going to meetings in europe where they've been doing early and and kundus it really was the first to really kind of figure out what the problem was the problem was that if the it, it was a feature of complicated combination of cup design and cup position that led to metallosis so it was the patients with the smaller sizes which as you said, we're were more mostly women. And then it was one particular implant design that was particularly bad. That was the Depuy ASR. And that one was recalled with a 50% failure rate at five years with a total hip version and 30% at five years with, with their resurfacing version. So it was it was an absolute disaster. The other resurfacing implants start we started seeing occasional of these wear failures where Everything looks well fixed, but the bone was disappearing, and then there was all this white reaction in the body, fluid reaction, and tissue inflammation, and sometimes soft tissue inflammatory masses, which, which were by some called pseudo tumors, false tumors. And, and Kuhn figured out that the problem was with the coverage arc of the cup. And so we just all went back and looked at the designs of these things, and it turns out that the smaller implants have a smaller coverage arc than the bigger ones. And the ASR had a smaller coverage arc than all the other companies. They all were kind of in a similar range. They were all what we call sub-hemispherical. They were not 180 degrees. Like I told you earlier, this, we were going to come back to this. Right. They were, we were shooting for about 165 because that's where the natural hip was. But now the ASR went way below that. And that's why they had a really bad. One of the reasons they had a bad problem. When we look back at our design, there was a quirk in in our design um, rules that made the smaller implants uh, more shallow, more had a lower coverage arc than the bigger one. So, the biomed is very similar to the BHR. We basically you you know looked at their implant design and we stayed very close to that because that had been successful. And the conserve plus, um, the off the top of my head, I think it was about 155 degrees. So so 180 is a hemisphere. Smallest size, which is a 40, is about 155, and the biggest size, which is a 60, so 40 to 60 in 2-millimeter increments are the sizing for for this implant. The 60 was about 165. We saw very few wear failures at the high sizes, more at the lower sizes. And the ones that we saw the wear failures on were all cups that were placed a little bit too steep or a little bit too tilted forward, antiverted. So what tilt it making it steeper, the cup steeper or antiverting is it it uncovers the edge is a way to think about it. So I, I almost have to show it to you with a model and an implant. But if you have a pelvis, you just picture a pelvis in front of you with a cup in it. If you tilt that cup upward so it's steeper, that's increased inclination. And then if you tilt the, the front lip forward, that's antiversion. If you do both of those, that top corner kind of pulls away from the vertical, right? right? Can you picture that? Yeah. And and so what happens is when the implant is wearing, that wear patch is now sitting very close to the edge. Stop right there and go back a step. So when an implant, it turns out, this is all learned way after we designed these things, um, because edge loading was really an unknown phenomenon before metal bearings exhibited this problem. It was happening. but We just didn't know about it. Happens with all implants. Um, but if you put a cup in, so it's in the right position, whatever, whatever that is, we put it in the right position, and then you put the ball in it, and a patient is standing and walking on it, there's a, a, a force vector where most of the force is going through and where most of the wear is occurring. I told you already, it was a polar-bearing implant. There was a small area where the implant is touching and it was a fluid film around it. That's called a contact patch. If that contact patch while the patient is using it, is far away from the edge of the implant. You have a good fluid film and that thing runs with a very low rate of wear and can basically run forever without the bearing surface wearing out. And we've this has been demonstrated in laboratory you know, simulation. But if you then put the cup too steep and tilt it too forward, that contact patch gets closer and closer to the edge. Once it gets gets to a certain point, you start losing that fluid film. The fluid starts escaping off the edge of that cup. And you don't get that fluid film lubrication anymore. Suddenly, the wear rate of that metal-metal implant goes from infinitesimal to, you know, I don't know, 1,000, 10,000 fold. It just really accelerates. And, and then over a few years' time, you can get enough metal being shed that it starts uh, overloading the local tissues and causing this severe inflammatory reaction. So that 's what you have to understand to understand adverse wear or, or metallosis in and, and, and metal bearings. Kuhn discovered that it was the shallower cups were more likely to do it. Well, that does certainly make sense, doesn 't it? If you have a cup that has a bigger coverage arc that it 's going to be a lot harder to put it in so that contact patch ends up at, at the edge. Do you follow that
0: i
1: do
2: and and then if you any cup you take, if you tilt it more superior and averted, that contact patch, the, the contact patch is term, determined by the where the femur sits. And then you just take the cup and you twirl it on top of that, right? And then you can kind of turn it. If you turn it far enough, the contact patch is by the edge and then you have edge loading. It's a complicated process um, because patients have all kinds of different shapes of pelvises and acetabula and they stand differently and all that kind of stuff. But the simple concept is if the coverage arc is too low and you tilt that cup too far, then you then you create an, a situation where edge loading starts occurring. And that's when they fail with metallosis. cement figured it out first in about 07 or 08 or 09. I followed his lead and I started collecting metal ion levels on, on all patients, just as a routine to see, to pick up people early that were starting to have metallosis. So you can measure the blood ion level and um, when we started doing this, we didn't know, you know what they should be. We started measuring them, and then gradually we figured this out. We figured out that the ion level is a very good screening test for what's going on in the hip. Metal particles are released by the wear process. The particles hit the tissues. They're microscopic. You can't see them, and they start corroding, and the ions are released, and then they go in the blood, and then they, then they get, ex- get filtered by the kidney, excreted. So there's a system of removing them from the body, and everybody can handle a certain amount of debris, whether it's plastic or metal or stuff. But metal bearing puts off so little that it never becomes an issue for the patient. It doesn't bother them. But when you create the edge loading situation, you overload the system. The tissues get loaded with metal. When you open one of these up, they're gray with cobalt debris. They have gray metal everywhere. But you first notice it by taking a blood test and seeing that the levels are sky high. So we started learning that those are the problem patients and and. And so we did a study where we correlated ion levels and we had x-rays and, and measured cup positions in the standing position. It was um, my thought that we had to we could, we could had to stop using lying down x-rays, which is the standard orthopedics, but use standing x-rays instead because people's pelvises shift when they stand compared to when they lie relative to the x-ray beam. And standing is really the position you wear. And so we got to get a standing x-ray on everybody, measure the cup angles, and measure the ion levels, and then we figured out who were the failures. Um and then we did an analysis of that. We had about 750 patients. And we created, we found out that, as Kuhn had predicted, that, that the smaller implants, you, you had to put them at a more horizontal position. The bigger ones, you could put at a steeper position and get away with it. Um, so we crunched all this data in this complicated, and you can read it on my website. It's a, It was published in um, Journal of Arthroplasty, I don't know, 2015 or something. But we, cr- we created this analysis where we we actually could draw a straight line graph with uh, the inclination angle of the cup on one side and the bearing size on the bottom. And you, you know, if you stayed under that line, you didn't ever have any wear problems. The ion levels were good. If you're above that, they didn't all fail, but that's the zone they failed in. So we've kind of, we kind of proved um, statistically Kuhn dismissed concept that a steeply positioned cup with a small size is the one that's likely to fail. So, so why weren't the big ones put too steep? Well, you could put them away more steep and get away with it. So the surgeon who's putting them in and it's hard to know what the standing position of the patient's going to be. And nobody has any criteria exactly the position these are in. It's kind of like a, it's a craft. It's not scientifically determined. It wasn't until we we did the study. So some cups ended up a little flatter, some more steep, you know, all these, they're all over the place. The big ones that were steeper didn't get in trouble because, you know, they, they had a bigger safe zone. The smaller ones, they went over that safe zone very quickly, and they started failing. So that's where we saw our wear failures. So the problem with ASR was they made them all too shallow. The the problem with all the other companies is that we had a variation in coverage arc from the smallest to the biggest, and it was the smaller ones that were more problematic. So we learned from that that low coverage arc leads to to, uh, edge loading, but how could we solve this problem is, is then the next question. How do you solve that problem? You know that. We know this now. A bunch of us in the field know this. But most of the people doing total hips have no clue about this. They just think metal bearings cause metallosis and, you know, it's a black box. But we know this by about 2009. We're really certain of what the, what the position, cup positions are that, that are a problem and what the, bear, what the design characteristics are. So there's three ways to solve it. One is the way that Smith Nephew solved it. They just took the smaller sizes off the market. So surgeons couldn't put them in. Okay, then you then you get rid of all your wear failures because the bigger ones don't hardly ever do it.
0: Right.
2: Second way to solve it is what Wright Medical did. They designed they redesigned their cup to make it deeper. So they made every coverage arc 170 degrees. They took it above the coverage arc of the biggest ones. What do you risk with that? Well, yet you could have impingement on the neck. Right. So so that's the trade off. Um, but you're not going to get metallosis anymore because those cups you can put up at 60, 55, 60 degrees. Inclination and not have metallosis, don't have, get not get contact, edge contact. The way I solved it was to develop a technique for putting all cups into that safe zone. So the smaller ones have a safe zone too, it's just a smaller safe zone. And you have to get a standing x ray to know if the cup is positioned right. So someone who says, I hear this all the time, I had a metallosis case and the cup position was great. I know that's a false statement. Either they didn't measure it, they didn't measure it accurately, or they didn't even get didn't get the right X-ray. They got a supine X-ray, and then that patient had, and the cup looked. The cup measurement was okay. Then the patient stands up, their pelvis tilts back 10-15 degrees, like some patients do, a small percentage. Right. Now the cup is sitting much steeper. That's why that guy was edge loading, but they didn't have a clue because they didn't didn't understand why these things edge load. Um, so we developed the technique once we discovered this this safe zone we then the next step even while we were discovering we were developing ways to put these cups in more accurately but at that point in time nobody was taking x-rays of their implants to check implant position i mean we were all taught it was worthless because an intraoperative x-ray just is totally inaccurate you get you know the patient's rotated on the table you can never standardize it. it's 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 totally a worthless undertaking but i came to realize that as as this metallosis was coming up if we were going to keep doing resurfacing we absolutely had to find a way to do this and i didn't have a robot available and i didn't have nav surgical navigation so I'd, i got to find a way to do this with x-ray so we delved out the uh, technique and it actually turns out to be very simple you just have to you know you just had to work at it and it took us about 2 or 3 years and then we had it down and, and it's simple the 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 really the breakthrough was at the same time uh, digital x-ray was coming coming into play in the hospitals bought these digital x-ray machines so you could snap an X-ray and immediately look at it and measure it, and then you could reposition things and X-ray again. The old way was to take an X-ray on a regular film. They had to let the tech had to run it over to the X-ray right. department. They had to they had to process it. They could bring it back. They put it up on your window. You you know you can get a you can take your gloves off and do a bunch of you know marks on the on the view board and you know take like a ten minute process for each X-ray. <laughs> So what happens when we first start doing this, of course, the x-ray is malpositioned. You don't get a standardized surgery. The pelvis is all rotated. You can't get an accurate implant position. But it was pretty easy. All you had to do was we could just roll the OR table. So, so the, the pelvis could be, could be malpositioned by rotation because you're, you know, you're working on this patient. You're twisting their leg and everything. No holder can hold them, hold them perfectly right. So, so they could be rotated or they could be tilted, you know, two, degrees of, two, two different degrees of freedom. Right. So we take that, snap that annex, initial picture. The, I snap and I look at it right there. There's no delay. I see. Okay, this patient is rotated. So the anesthetist tilts the table. You could tell which way they're rotated. If they're rotated towards the towards the camera or away from it, you roll it the appropriate way. You snap another picture. Okay, you you tell that tilt by looking at the obturator foramen. If they're symmetrical, their uh, roll is neutral. All right. So then you got that. They're not not rolled anymore on the table. But then what about degree? Could they be tilted backwards or forward? Um, well, w- what we do is we brought a, extra, a paper copy print, print of a pre-op x-ray. I took a standing x-ray on every patient pre-operatively. I put it up on the board, and I look how tall the operator framing are. I snap that initial picture. and say, oh, these aren't as tall as on that picture. Okay, then I tilt the tube with the x-ray. Take another snap. Now they match up with that x-ray. So now I've reproduced the pelvic position relative to the X-rayed beam to that that patient has when they stand up in my clinic afterwards. Simple, right? It's super simple. It takes less than two minutes to do this. I got my inclination angle. I refer to I have a little chart in the room which where the safe zone is. It's right at the safe zone. Okay, I go in there and tap the cup, reposition it a little bit, reimpact it, take go through the x-ray procedure, take another picture. It's perfect. Boom. We're done. We know when this patient stands up in in the uh and gets an x-ray, it, this cup is not going to be too steep. We got that process perfected somewhere around 2009. We published another paper verifying our, our rail guidelines, what we call it, relative S-tabular inclination limit guideline, rail guideline. We've, so we, we hit the rail guideline every single time by doing this intraoperative x-ray. We took a post-op x-ray. It matched up every time. None of them went over the rail. Years later, none of these patients had excessive ion levels or wear. And since 2009, I had, that was the last in 2009, I had my last case where the cup was too steep. Since that time, I've done about 4,000 implants and not a single wear failure. So we've proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's a positioning problem, also a design problem of the implant, and, and you can get it right every time.
1: A patient shows up in your clinic that has spinal hardware or has an auto-fused lumbar spine, are you going to tweak your uh, inclination and your interversion on that patient? It
2: absolutely applies, but it's totally different in resurfacing. And I, that's, that's what I was onto already in 2009. So the problem in total hips and in resurfacings is different. For resurfacing, the problem is not instability because you have a normal-sized mechanical bearing and you reconstruct the soft tissue. So the only time these things are unstable is if your cup is way out of position, which you're going to have a wear problem, probably more likely than a dislocation, or if the soft tissues, for some reason, don't heal properly. So basically, we don't have an instability problem. It's a super rare problem, quirky problem. We have a wear problem if the cup is put too steep in the standing position. And yes, people who have stiff spines... Surgical fused spines, what they tend to do is tilt their pelvis more posteriorly. So if you look at them from the side, it's like they're thrusting their pelvis out. You can't see it, but you'll see it on x ray, right? So the obturators get really tall. What's happening with a cup? The acetabulum moves into a more inclined and a more antiverted position, right? Everybody in the total hip world knows this by now. These are the ones that showed up with more wear failures because their cups were then too steep and too antiverted. And they edge loaded, right? So like we noticed that that a lot of these wear failure cases were were pieces break. People were had had a lot of posterior pelvic tilt. But in a patient with a you know less pelvic tilt, if you just put the cup higher, you could no matter how you get the cup too steep relative to the horizontal line, you get edge loading. You can get it by having a, a stiff spine that tilts the pelvis back, or if just if you put the cup too high, too steep in that pelvis. In the final analysis, if the cup is too steep relative to the horizontal, I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's what leads to edge loading. And to invert also, we've been correcting for this a long time because we get a standing film and we get our cup position relative to the horizontal on that standing film. Now, in recent years, I've I've fine tuned that a little bit because what I've noticed is when I when I've done that, you have to tilt the cup more horizontal, flatter than you would normally relative to that natural socket. And then what it what it does is it makes that makes the edge of the cup stick out superiorly too much. And what happens sometimes is they impinge their femoral neck into the edge of that cup. So what I've done over the last four or five years, I've moved to, I still follow that rail guideline, keep that cup tilted, but I just deepen the preparation so that cup sinks in further. So you've got to get the right angle first, and then you push it as deep as you need to so that that superior anterior edge goes below the acetabulum, so they can't bump the neck into it anymore. There's a whole other problem with the anterior inferior edge and the psoas, which we solved a long time ago. That's the way we deal deal with pelvic tilt. Now, in total hips, it's a different problem. They also get edge loading, but it's not a big problem with polyethylene. Cross-linked polyethylene can tolerate a lot of edge loading and not explode like a like a metal bearing. What their problem is is that they dislocate. They're actually doing the opposite in these same patients. Their problem is that they have a mechanically disadvantaged bearing size. Right? They've taken a 52 millimeter person bearing size person and made them into a 32. So they don't have the motion before the neck of that implant bumps into the edge of the cup and they dislocate. And the people will tilt their pelvises back, they have to actually tilt the cup up with that so that they avoid that problem. If they tilt the cup down too much like I'm doing, they run the neck of the implant and then they dislocate. You know, I'm going to all these total hip lectures, although I hardly ever do total hips anymore. And that's what I'm seeing these guys doing. So they're going, they're going the exact opposite with their cup positioning than I am because we're, we're trying to solve a totally different problem. It's really strange.
1: What's the trick? I've been in posterior hips where a surgeon would have to remove a lot of neck just to get a view of the acetabulum, but you're leaving it all there. So what are you doing to, to get around that head and to be able to see the acetabulum clearly to get everything in?
2: That's the central challenge of resurfacing. That's that's why most people don't do it because they're scared of doing that. They don't think they can do it. It's it's a technical challenge to to get at the acetabulum with not just the femoral neck but the femoral head in the way. Right. You have to master that, and then everything else. First, starting resurfacing. That that was the primary challenge, and that, I think that's what still stops most surgeons. In addition to to all the the false hype about the severity of metallosis problems and the the frequency of them and the fact that they 're random, and all this nonsense that 's out there in, in the total joint world um, they 're not random they 're predictable, and you can put the cups it 's all about cup position and cup design. You can put the cup with the implants designs that are out there. you can put the cup perfectly every time and never have a metallosis problem all right so the early ones had it, and the no, if you know how to do it, you, you don 't have that problem um, but the first challenge is is getting the right exposure so you can do it. And if you don't get the head out of the way enough, then you can't prepare the socket well enough and you screw up the socket positioning. So early on, we we didn't get the socket position right because we didn't know what the target was. But we know the target now. For some people, the problem is even you know before that, they, they they just can't see it well enough to even know where they're putting it and how they're preparing it. And that's the problem. So how do you do that? The the key is uh, that and I, and I do this through a four inch incision now, but right? but that's certainly not the way you should start doing this. You know the standard way is a ten or twelve inch incision, so you can really see what's going on. But once you know, I mean once you've done thousands, you know how to do it. You, you can do it through a small incision even, but it's foolhardy to start that way. Um, but the key is what you do on the inside, not the like the skin incision. So what you what you have to do is you have to create a pocket above the acetabulum to put the head into, and you have to cut the capsule all the way around. You have to be sure, you have to see it with your eyes that you've cut it 360 degrees. So with a total hip, you cut the capsule in the back or the front, and then you cut the head and neck off, and then you've got space to work with, right? So, right. so total hip is a difficult operation, but but that's a whole lot easier than going in there and now having to go, Around that whole head and neck on the other side, where you can't see anything, cut that cap. Make sure you got that capsule all cut, and then create a pocket under the abductors to stick that head in. Those are the two things. We learned how to kind of make these pockets in revision surgery years ago. when we had the uh, fixed head AML implants, they were 32 millimeter balls, and if you wanted to save one of those and revise the cup, you know, we, we used to think that was a huge challenge. How do we get this out and get that head up out of the way so we can see the socket? We learned how to do that. That's how I started resurfacing. You know, I'd learned how to do that. I said, okay. This is going to be a lot tougher. I now have a much bigger, not a 32, I have a 52 head. I got to stuff up there. <laughs> so you have to learn how to make a bigger pocket, but you don't damage the abductors. You can go underneath them and elevate them up and get the head up, but you're never going to get head up unless you cut the capsule completely. If you just cut the capsule around the back and try to get it up, that enter capsule will tether your hip and you, you have to re- disconnect the femur from the acetabulum to do this operation. What you need to do is first, you just to do a very... In my view, you have to do a very careful anatomic dissection. You can't just take things off in bulk and just pull and tear and do things like that. You have to do this kind of, uh, you know, we like to say meticulous. You you have to find the structures, take down the short rotators, see the capsule, clear it all the way around the back where I'm coming from the back, all the way around the back where you can see it. Get under the abductors, get under the minimus, it's right on the capsule. Get it up, elevate it, elevate it up. Okay, I can now see 180 degrees of the capsule, the back 180 degrees. I cut a big flap and elevate it back. I'm preserving the whole capsule and sewing it back. I create a flap. I flap it back. I release it off the back of the ass tab a little bit so I can really flip it back. Then, at that point, I, my assistant brings the hip up into extreme abduction. So it, it, the top of the hip, the tissues in the top of the capsule become loose. I put a retractor between the, the minimus and the capsule, and I can see, not very well, but I can see the, the superior core, quadrant of the capsule. So, again, I've, I've already released the whole posterior half. Now I'm going for the superior quadrant. I go with a cautery and I cut. Derek McMahon and the others, they do it with a big old scissor. I don't like a blind scissor going down there, but it seems to work. But I like to take a cautery. I can see it and cut it. And you can see when you go, if you keep a dry field, use a tissue sealer, you don't have blood everywhere and a mess, and you do careful dissection, you can see the capsule and where where once you've cut it, you see muscle again. So you can go through and cut it, cut that anterior quadrant. At that point, you have one quarter of the capsule left, the anterior inferior quadrant. At this point, you dislocate the head, and you stick it into that pocket you've made by raising the abductors. And you put a retractor underneath the neck, over the so- front of anterior super socket, and your assistant pulls hard on that. You put a retractor down below, and you see the lesser choke enter, You see the psoas, and you see in front of it a band of capsule. And you take a cautery and you just cut right down across that until you see the psoas pop up in front of you. Totally controlled, totally visualized, and you can cut all the way to that top corner where you had come from the top. You meet the other spot. I mean, except in a very few really thick muscular patients, you can see this. And you, you know that you've cut the capsule all the way around. Then you have to go and release the conjoined tendon where the gluteus maximus comes in about a couple centimeters down the leg. So you can rotate the femur. Then you can rotate the femur right out of the skin, in a thin person. And, and if I've had a fatter person or big muscular person, you have to kind of work through a, through, a, through a soft tissue tunnel a little bit with retractors. And then you can prepare the head. I prepare the head first because their heads are often bulky with a lot of spurs and everything on them. So if you prepare the head and get it smaller and put a trial on it, it, it fits up into that pocket a little easier, gets you a little bit of a better look at the socket. Uh, a lot of surgeons do it in the reverse, but that's just my way. And there you are. you got the head prepared. Now you stick the head back up in the socket, get your retractors in. And most of the time you have a beautiful view of the socket. I mean, you, it, it's it's wide open, and that's what you have to have to – to properly prepare and and position the cup because the cup is really the key to the operation you you got to see it well and you got to prepare it exactly right put the cup in the right position x-ray it make sure it's not hanging over in the wrong spots and if you want I can go over all the details but <laughs> it takes a while <laughs>
0: well I
1: want to direct my audience what's the uh, website address
2: my website is for is for uh, mainly i mean anybody can go on it um, there's lots of data there all my data is Posted there, my all my scientific papers are on there. So anybody who's interested in look concisely looking for what I've done can read any of my papers there. Uh, and uh, there's lots of informational stuff for patients, and then there's information for you know patients to to send information into me for a consultation. But my website is grossortho uh, dot com. com. You
1: know you've built an amazing practice on this technology, and I know that people are flying. From all over the country to Columbia, South Carolina, to get this procedure done. What do you attribute that to? How is the word getting out about it?
2: Well, it's been a gradual process, and there's really not a whole lot of advertising per se. It started. It's a funny story. It started when I when I first sat down on on some scrap piece of papers with Ian Paling, the uh, CEO of Corin. We wrote out an FDA ID study, and and you know I was a I was the lead investigator, and his was he was the company, and we started that. I started doing those. We put in a whole protocol to the FDA, and, and we got a proof for FDA ID study. Big hassle. Oh, my gosh. But uh, but that got me in the door way before anybody else had implants. I could start putting them in. I got a call from some guy up in upstate New York. He wanted to talk to me. He said he wanted to resurface. He'd heard about me through the, core the west That I guess that somehow they had me on there. Um, I said, I want to come down and have a hip resurface. He was a young guy. I don't remember how old he was, Forties or something. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about this. You want to come from all the way from New York and have me operate on here, and then you want to go back? I go, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. At that point, you know, we were, we were we had like the average hospital stay was about three or four days. Right. So I said, okay, I'll do it for you. He really was insisting you want to do it. So I said, okay, I'll do it for you. Because, you know, there's hardly anybody doing it in the country at the time. You know, Harlan Amstead was doing some, and, and I think he was the only other guy. And I didn't even know he was doing it. And so. So, uh, he flew I thought you got to stay here for like a, a week or two weeks <laughs> um, and he and his girlfriend or wife came down here, and uh, I still remember the guy 's name um, and he came down here and I did a surgery and it went perfectly and later he came back, I think for his other one and he stayed a week and he went home and that was the first one It was kind of shocking to me and then I started to start getting these calls <laughs> I started getting these calls. people were hearing about it and uh and then it it just sort of morphed and it just became. You know, more and more people start. Then I developed a website. It's, I don't even know when I first started my website. So I just put out an informational website, you know, and so people people could find it. And uh, people started finding it. The internet is really, I mean, this wouldn't have, my practice wouldn't have been possible without, without the internet.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and people started finding it. Just word of mouth, you know. This guy told his friends, and they told their friends, and, you know, they were going back, and these young guys were going back and playing basketball and playing tennis, and, and their friends who had total hips were, like, limping around on the golf course. It's like, People were starting to hear about it. It Started coming. Then at one point, I even I did put out a Google ad. You know how you can get hits to your website. I right. did that for a while. That's about the only advertising I ever did. I did that for a few years. You know, paid a few thousand bucks to to drive a little traffic my way. But but I, I haven't done that in years. And uh, it's just basically um, word of mouth. There's a there's a real great group of hip uh, websites called Surface Hippie.
1: I see. So that. these are.
2: You've heard about them? Yeah. yeah. I have. So, so these are people who will find out about resurfacing and you know, become interested in this and want this, they can become really fanatic. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah. And they
2: they got all you know, people just went off and created these websites and all this stuff. And and so then a lot of surgeons who do this, most you know, most of the people surgeons who do hyper surfing know about this and we're on the surface hippie website. So I get a lot of business to them. So people start, you know, just doing searches and they come across hyper surfing and they come to surface hippie and they go there and they They have, you know, they have this chat rooms and they have some information there and, you know, they see, I have an ad on there, right? So they see me there and, but every surgeon who does a bunch of them can put in his bio and how many he's done and so forth there, right? So it's a good patient resource. They know who around the country does this and then they can contact us. So I get a lot of contacts from there. Um, I get, I get contacts from people who just, you know, just Google it now and just hit my, come upon my website. And then probably the most patients still are just people who, people who, um, just, you know, word of mouth. It's just an extended word of mouth network. So I operate on a dentist who goes back, who lives in Detroit. He tells every one of his patients that, you know, that limps in there. Oh, you guys should check this out. Don't have a total lip. Check this website out. I start seeing like dozens of patients flying down from Detroit, you know, then then there's another hot spot. I get these hot spots. you know, so I do somebody he goes home and then for a while, it's like everybody hears about it and they're all, coming in from that. So people go on my website and there's a whole section there. Now we've built it out. You know, we've refined this over the years where they can go on and they can download a bunch of forms and they they can even download an x-ray prescription to go get an x-ray if they don't have a decent x-ray. And they send me a disc. They send me their hip. I do have a standardized hip questionnaire and their past medical history questionnaire. So they send it in, send it to my secretary. She puts together a packet and every week I get five or 10 of these folders. And on the evening, on the weekends, I sit down and start calling people. I have everything in front of me, like they've just come to my office. And I just, you know, I see their x-rays. I talk to them sometimes. Sometimes they're not, you know, so there's some issue I got to work out or I'm not sure. But for the most part, it's pretty clear cut. They have a bone on bone hip. I look at their medical problems, see if they're feasible. And, uh, you know, we talk, we chat a little bit. I answer all their questions. Pretty much they're contacting me because They've already looked around. They want a resurfacing. They've figured it out. And so we have a little chat. I have my nurse sign them up. They go get their medical physical done locally. So there's no issues when they come here. Everything's already been checked out. They send all that stuff in. We review it. So they show up the day before surgery and we sit down and talk again. you know, meet face to face and go over you know, any fine points that came up during their medical consultation, all that kind of stuff. And then I operate on them. I do them all, virtually all outpatient now at our surgery center. I do an outpatient surgery. They go to a hotel overnight. I see them the next morning. They fly home. If, or they, they drive home. If they fly, I keep them two nights, and then they fly back home to wherever. I mean, have people come from Alaska, from everywhere. We've got it pretty well automated, they, and they could do remote follow-up through the website. Uh, some of them choose to fly back, you know. but the people who are from further away, uh, I almost never see them again. They just do a remote follow-up, and they can do all their follow-ups remotely. If they have a problem, I talk to them on the telephone They have a problem with their wound, they can snap a picture on their cell phone and send it to my nurse. I mean, you really almost don't need to see patients in person (laughs) anymore except to operate on them. Because, you know, we were doing telemedicine for 10 years before the COVID thing came on. I just never billed anybody before I just did it. But that's how how it sort of of evolved over time. And at this point, about 80% 80 of my practice is from out of state. And about 10% of my paper leapers are from the Columbia metro area and 10% from the rest of the state. And it's been that way for 10 years at least. And we've just sort of fine-tuned the whole process. So in, in addition to fine-tuning how to do resurfacing, we fine-tuned how to do outpatient surgery. I've been doing this hip resurfacing outpatient for eight years now. We first started doing it on lo- just local patients. You know, first I was just bringing people in from all over with one night stay in the hospital. I've been doing that for years. I said, we don't need this night. Finally, we jumped over and did it at the surgery center, and that's so much better because... We own the surgery center. We control everything. I don't have to, you know, hassle with the hospital providing a physical therapist at the right time. They never have enough staff. You know, it's never smooth at the hospital. And at the surgery center, total control. Everything is done the way I want it. I mean, it's so amazing. So much fun to practice there. You go in there, you have the same staff every day. I don't even have to talk during my operation. My, my techs know the instrument without me calling out the name. I mean, because the hospital, that work that happens, you train someone up, that happens for a while, then they leave and someone else comes in because the hospitals don't treat people right. You know, they have a revolving door of people. It's just a constant headache. At the surgery center, people love working there. I have the same staff all the time. It's a machine. It's it's every all all the little little kinks are worked out. It's it's a lot of fun to do it that way.
1: What's the pain profile look like in a resurfacing versus a total? Does staying out of the canal kind of lower the pain points for the procedure.
2: I mean, I've never done a formal study, but I can't see a difference. Um, okay. Uh, so so some people would say it would be it, it'd be more difficult to do a resurfacing at an outpatient setting, right? So you know, we're kind of going through this process over the last five, four or five years of moving total joints to an outpatient setting. We started eight years ago. And, you know, we're way ahead of the curve. And we started it with the hardest primary operation, hip resurfacing. I mean, think about the way hip resurfacing is done. Most people think it's a maximally invasive procedure. I mean, you're doing, you're, you're taking a little bit of bone off, but you, the exposure you have to get is more than a total hip. Most people are making 10-inch incisions. Um, and, they're, they're you know, for the, for the surgeon who starts this, you know, a total hip's a you know, 45 minute hour operation and it's resurfacing is a three hour operation and they're bathed in sweat. So they think of this as like this really complicated, long, big whack of an operation <laughs> and we're doing that as an outpatient procedure? I mean, that's crazy, right? right? Well, it's not exactly like that. Once you learn how to do it, it's not that big of a struggle. You just have to know once, it takes a while, it takes a thousand cases to really know your way around the hip to do this right. But once you get there, I mean, I, I'm not a fast operator. It takes me an hour and a half. You know, I can, I know people can do total hips in 30, 45 minutes do an anterior approach, but yeah, this is a little more technical stuff, but it's, it's not, it's not, I do my total hip in about the same amount of time posterior. So to me, it's the same either way. Now, um, I'm not super fast, um, but it's careful dissection, good blood management. What's, what's changed, what's changed to move it to outpatient is, is that we've gotten better pain management. We've learned about pain management last 15, 20 years. And, um, we've learned about blood management, right? So even 10 years ago, about 30% of total hips were being transfused. I haven't transfused. and, And there was a study out on resurfacing, a randomized control study out of Canada saying that the outcomes were the same at two years between resurfacing and total hip. But the only difference was that the blood loss in a resurfacing was 700 and in a total hip was 200. So they recommended doing, so their recommendation with that study was, uh, to do total hips because you lost less blood. That was the conclusion of the study. And I read that study. I'm going, I'm losing 150 cc's. What are these guys doing? Um, so that just shows you, you know, once you learn the operation and, and we've gotten much better tools, there's a tool called the Aquamantis. I, I'm sure you've seen it. In yes, LA. I have. It's a tissue sealer, right? If you use that judiciously, and then now we have transexamic acid. Now, everybody's using that now. We've been using it for forever, 10 years. Um, you do tranexamic acid, you do a tissue sealer, and you just are a careful surgeon and just, just don't rip and tear. You can do a hip resurfacing operation through a four or five inch incision with 150 cc blood loss routinely, and you never, I trans- haven't transfused anybody in 10 years. You never transfuse anybody. Well, once you get to that point, why do you need them in a hospital? You don't have to watch them and check their hemoglobin. and They might need to be transfused, right? So, so that was traditionally one reason that you couldn't get them out of the hospital. You had to watch them. The other was that they had too much pain. They were all on PCAs or they had morphine shots. I mean, you can't send someone home and give them morphine shots. Well, that's all been revolutionized over the last ten years, right? We started, we started just started thinking about it and started doing multimodal pain management. You know, you started using why not give everybody three thousand of Tylenol? Yeah, Tylenol's not enough to do a hip surgery, but you maximize that, then you use an anti-inflammatory, then you use a. Now they've got Exparel, and that's been around. We've been using that for at least seven or eight years before when it first came out, so you got that, you got anti-inflammatories, you got Tylenol. Um, we use an ice machine and then you use a long acting narcotic to kind of, you know, smooth out the bumps, give them a little bit of narcotic. And then you have a short acting narcotic to kind, of, to kind of let them bump it up a little bit if they need to. I mean, these people get up after the surgery, they walk around, they go up and down the stairs, they walk around my surgery center, they eat and drink, they're smiling. The family takes them out in the car and drives them over to the hotel. Pain management. Blood management, right? Those are the two things that have let us go outpatient. The blood management also pay, plays into pain management role because you know if, if you lose less blood, there's less blood in the tissues, and blood in the tissues hurts after a while, right? You get a, if you get a lot of blood early on, it distends the tissues, it hurts like hell, and then later on, just that blood irritates the tissues forever till it gets absorbed. So doing good blood management helps with the pain management also. But I mean, really, you know, and, I, and most, and the other thing that helps is that. Most of my patients are younger patients, right? Younger patients. I mean, I do research on anybody who wants it, pretty much. There's a few restrictions, but we don't need to get into that. But, um, but most of them are, you know, average patients 50 years old. So, on general, they, they're healthier, more fit patients. But I do patients that are BMI 35, and I do patients who sit at a computer and don't do anything. You know, I have a lot of athletes, for sure, but I have, I have the unfit ones, too. I've got the big ones, the unfit ones, and they, they, can, they can do it just fine, too. We really can do these operations without much blood loss, and, and, and we have such good pain management tools now that the hospital really has become unnecessary for us as orthopedic surgeons.
1: I about came off my sofa when I was watching one of my favorite shows, Deadliest Catch, and Wild Bill uh, was complaining about his hip, and next thing I know, he's on a plane, and I see him walking into Midland's orthopedics and i just uh, i looked at my wife and i said i know where he's going and it was uh uh, is he as much of a character in real life as he is on the show i mean what what oh
2: my god yes every bit uh uh, you know i'm I'm sorry to say i've never seen the show and i've always meant to go back and see the episodes at least i I just don't watch tv yeah he is a character so i don't know how what he is on the tv but i can imagine yeah he's a real character yeah uh uh, yeah he's he was He's a fun guy to take care of. He, he, <laughs> I, I can see how he makes a great TV show.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he's got great hair. I mean, let's give it to yeah, him.
2: He's, he's just got a great personality. You know, he's just he's just out there. One of my partners kind of uh, directed him my way. He's, he kind of came to me in an unusual way. He he knew some people in Columbia. He was out there visiting, and uh, they were friends with, with one of my partners. And called us, and said, can, can you it, check his hip out? So he came in, and my partner x-rayed his hip. Said, oh, you got a bad hip. You need to go over and see Tom and
0: <laughs> get a hip
2: reserve thing. So that's how it turned out. Then, then he asked me. Then he asked me, uh, you know, can I film this? <laughs> kind of like, kind of like the guy, the first guy from New York who came. You know, it's like, can I film this? I'm, well, um, I don't know. I, I guess <laughs> I guess you
0: can.
2: <laughs> so he brought his cameraman and he filled a bunch of things in there. And yeah, we couldn't bring him like into the cameraman into the OR. Actually, sure. that, 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 that was There that was a restriction on that but uh we did a lot of the other parts and uh you know I was a little nervous about it because what if something did go wrong Then it be on <laughs> then it'd be on TV yes <laughs> but luckily
0: everything every,
2: luckily everything turned out well for him um you know so yeah that was <laughs> that was an experience
1: well dr Gross, i have so much respect for what you've done sir you you've taken a procedure that was long on promise but short on delivery way back when and You've really refined it and made it work for you and your patients. So well done. I uh, I appreciate you coming on the show to share all this stuff. It was great.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you, Dr. Gross. That was just absolutely amazing. What a cool story and cool technology, right? A lot of us don't run into hip resurfacing all the time, and it's it's good to know about it and what it is and, and what he has made out of it there in the Palmetto State. I wrote down two things that he said about the surgeons working through the failures of this device, and then his comment about doing a thousand of these to get through it. I really pondered both of those statements, and I just wanted to share something real quick before we close up shop here. Back when we had ski meetings, my wife and I were at Vail, and I thought this would be a great thing for our marriage. I'm going to teach my wife to ski. So we got up on the slopes and after some intense fellowship, so to speak, uh, I realized this was not very wise. I would only find out later from people that were very well seasoned on the slopes. Don't ever try to teach your spouse how to snowboard slash ski. It doesn't end well. And it didn't end well for me either. So I decided leave it to the professionals. So I left her with the professionals, knowing with their care and aptitude, they would have her on a black diamond mogul field in 24 hours. Uh, I went out to the back bowls to do my business, came back, and I knew this was going to be a breakthrough day for her. As I made my way back from Blue Sky Basin, I saw my wife, and she looked like Lindsey Vaughn from a distance. I said, this is going to be so Exciting. However, the closer I got, her face betrayed a completely different message. I just ran face first into the gondola tower was the first thing that came out of her mouth. No, we would not be doing a mogul field in 24 hours. Unfortunately, it was that day that my wife decided that her ski career was officially over and that she would be henceforth pursuing a career as a professional guest of the Vale Cascade Spa. Truly a dark day in the history of Kevin's wallet. So as we did the gondola tower debrief, my wife told me that her ski instructor said, don't look at the gondola tower because he knew that wherever you look is where your skis kind of go. My wife did not want to hit the gondola tower, so she thought keeping a close eye on it would prevent just that. Well, it was just the opposite, as her ski instructor knew. Where you look is where you go. So fast forward to two days ago, I was pushing an extremely heavy cart through the hospital with a lot of implants for an upcoming case on it, and I passed a huge glass wall where they had all the cardiac screening stuff going on, you know, the bicycles, the treadmills, that little hand bicycle crank that they use to measure VO2 and and whatever. And it was very distracting. And I looked up at the last second and realized I was about an inch away from going through that glass wall with my dolly and all that heavy stuff. I was literally going where I was looking. And what does it have to do with our conversation with Dr. Gross today? Well, absolutely everything. For someone to carry the torch for hip resurfacing in the face of everything that was going that opposite direction for so many years, that takes an extraordinary focus and perseverance and dedication. This particular surgeon went exactly where he was looking and intently so, seeing hip resurfacing to a successful and reproducible endpoint in his practice. So my question to you, everyone listening to the show, and I'm asking myself this same question, what are you looking at? What am I looking at? Is it the phone? (laughs) I had a friend of mine tell me today that the average American touches his phone 2,600 times a day. And the worst offenders were upwards of 5,400 times a day. And you know what? That's not going to get you anywhere. I made a little mental note that Dr. Gross said he doesn't really watch TV. Well, look what happened as a result of that. He looked at what he wanted to accomplish, locked in on it, and then aligned all of his activities around achieving that goal, and he went exactly where he was looking. So again, what are you looking at? Everybody's looking at something. Uh, some people never look to the future at all, and it's easy to do in medical device because your day can absolutely be swallowed up by the tyranny of the urgent. And at the end of the day, you still have twenty other things that you didn't get done. So you end up living in the here and now. And then that spin cycle spits you out 10 years from now, and you realize that you didn't really do anything. Uh, You just managed getting through the next 24 hours. And that's one thing uh, I think we need to jump on in 2021, is taking that half day a week to do nothing more than to focus on looking at something. Strategically, looking at something beyond the 12 hours that we deal with and think about what's coming down the road, and how can we best be prepared for that. When I was early in my career, I walked into a hospital that was decidedly not pro the company that I worked for, and the competitive rep that spent most of his time at this hospital stopped me in the hall, and he said kind of mockingly, are you lost? And I thought, no, I'm exactly where I need to be, right here in your face, And I look back on that and think, you know, the one thing that can take our eye off of what we should be looking at is what other people are saying about us, other people trying to psych us out, people that really don't have our best interests at heart. Maybe uh, they're on your team, maybe they're your boss, maybe they're people at the hospital. You know, there's people that can really rattle your cage, get in there into that headspace, Live in your cranium rent-free and totally get you off the mission. Don't get pulled in. Don't let their issues become your issues. Don't let their distractions become your distractions. This is a solo performance. So if anybody says, hey, what do you think you're doing here? Well, you know exactly what you're doing there because you know where you are looking and that's exactly where you're going to go. One other enemy that comes to my mind that can really get us off of our focus and being able to look is the fear of what's coming down the road and then filling that void with negative things. There's a lot of shaking going on right now. Every time I turn around, somebody in medical device has been let go, restructuring, uh, mergers going on, and a lot of times those mergers don't really help. You just got your territory cut in half now. You're splitting it with another rep. And and even if you grow your business, well, guess what? You got to hire another rep. And then there goes any financial gain from that. So there's a lot of challenging things going on in our space right now that can totally get you off looking where you're going. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Kevin, you're in denial. There's all these things going on. And How do you stay positive and look at this thing and that thing and stay focused on it? Well, I look at these things like a cardboard box. I know these things are out there. I know these challenges are out there. But when I walk into that hospital, it's in a cardboard box. It's taped up. It's in the corner of the room. It's not denial. I know it's there, but it's absolutely not going to affect me today and what I have to do. And those customers Those patients deserve my absolute focus and my family deserves that absolute focus of what I'm looking at day to day that's going to take us collectively to the next level. So again, what are you looking at? Is it going to get you to your goal? Do you have a goal? These are all things as we enter this new year, these are good times to reflect upon these very things. Where are we going? What do we want to accomplish? And then as Dr. Lima said in his book, and that wonderful interview we had with him, aligning what we're doing to achieve that goal. Because you know what? Where you're looking is where you're going, even if it's a gondola tower. And who knows? You do that, you focus, you put everything into it, and you look at that goal, you wake up one day, and guess what? You took a procedure that very few other people could make work, and you made it work. Uh, You had a surgeon that Everybody said it was impossible. Now he or she is doing your stuff. All because you decided to look, lock on. Anybody can look at something for half a second. Look, lock on, and align. I love this quote. Look and you will find it what is unsought will go undetected by Sophocles. You know, if this guy ordered a number two combo with sweet tea, it would sound that much more profound because his name is Sophocles. Great quote and a great point. If you're not looking for something, then that goal, that endpoint, may go right by you and you're not going to see it. Whereas if it's something you are looking for, if you're seeking it, there's a better chance you're going to find it because you're actively looking for it. Well, I'm thankful that you gave us a look today. I wish you the best this week and these coming weeks as we sit down and take stock and and look at what we should be looking at and then follow through with it. A great exercise for all of us. So as we go into this week, let's all remember to look, lock, line up. Just say no if Ludafisk is ever passed in your general direction for a festive celebration. And most importantly, let's all be.